So what are your qualifications then that you look for when you're grading a product? What are you specifically looking for? So I'll take you through my process. I purchase the product. It comes straight out of the refrigerator. I've put it straight into my little ice pack container until I get home. Then I let it sit there for about 15 minutes to get closer to room temperature. I crack the lid open. The first thing I'm doing is looking at it. I'm looking at the texture, the color, how wet is it? I tend to like the really wet cold cure batters just because they're shelf stable. They look delicious. Then I'm smelling the product. It's not that I'm smelling for any one thing in particular. I'm just like, what is the intensity of the smell? Can I hold it right here and smell the product? And if I can hold it right here and still smell it, typically it's pretty loud. It's pretty good product. But what I'm searching for, if I want to smoke it, is like, does this smell speak to me? And typically I found if this smell speaks to me and I like the smell of it, I'm going to enjoy smoking it. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And it is a brand new week. And for most of us, summer has officially ended and school has started. I do not have children, so I don't feel the chaos as much as you might be feeling, but I feel the general traffic picking back up now that things are back in session because I personally have to pass through three school zones to get to my work. But aside from that, typically, and the reason that I'm bringing this up is another thing to highlight, with summer comes summer travel, and so a lot of movement on the legislative and regulatory front typically slows down during the summer. But now that we're on the cusp of fall, I'm anticipating a lot more movement to pick up. Specifically, we still have a really big question mark around the 2023 Farm Bill. So I'm anticipating that to make some movement now that we're heading into the fall. We have seen, however, a couple of updates over the summer on the federal front. Most recently, I did see an update from a news headline that said the DEA says that Delta-8 synthesized from CBD is in fact a controlled substance. But I want to highlight and call out a few things. One, it's a news headline. I learned to take those at face value and always encourage you guys, as well as myself, to put into practice to continue to do more research and dig in deeper. So candidly, I'm not really sure how this update is really going to be rolled out or enforced, if anything, because they've been talking about this for some time and no action has actually been taken Not to mention the biggest but, this was pulled from an email and not actually an official statement or law. So it's something to pay attention to, but not something, in my opinion, that I see a lot of reaction being given to right now, honestly. Again, I'm not saying don't pay attention. I'm just saying there has to be a little bit more information and that is still yet to come. 
On a state front, Texas is about to re-engage in a lawsuit between some hemp operators who sued the state of Texas around the Department of State Health Services and their regulation against Delta 8. And now that hearing is going to take place next month in September. Clearly, again, there's some movement being done on this front around Delta 8 and the synthetic cannabinoid term, but it's a little too soon to tell how that will pan out. But of course, I'm local here in Texas. I will, of course, be keeping track of that lawsuit and hearing specifically as I see what unfolds next month. Now, I also did just confirm a trip to Washington, D.C. in September. If you've been checking out the podcast for a while, then you might remember that I went to D.C. last year to go lobby on behalf of the Texas Hemp Coalition. I will be heading back out again with the Texas Hemp Coalition, which is, if you're unfamiliar, a nonprofit that does a lot of hemp and cannabis advocacy here in Texas and is an organization near and dear to my heart because it's given me a lot of opportunity to get involved at a local and obviously federal level. I'm also the president of this organization, and I'm going to be joined by our executive director and lobbyist, Alyssa Nolan. Super grateful to work with her and to join her going up to D.C. We will go in partnership with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, which is a federal hemp advocacy organization, and we are going to speak with representatives in the House and Senate about some of these pressing issues. In fact... Just last month, Jonathan Miller, who's the general counsel for the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, actually met with members of Congress to urge them to take action on regulating hemp on a federal level. But the TLDR of that meeting was that basically the FDA is refusing to regulate hemp drive products and CBD, and really they refuse to even acknowledge that it has the authority to regulate it. So again, I am anticipating some of that to be addressed while we're up in D.C., and we'll absolutely share more updates as I I receive them. But like I mentioned, summer is over. So I'm looking forward to seeing how busy the fall gets with movement on some of these fronts. And of course, I'm always waiting to see how things play out. If you have anything to add, please feel free to reach out to me at to be blunt pod on social media. I truly love hearing the insights and things that you guys learn and have to add to the things that I'm sharing and really just value the community that we're able to build and have an opportunity to lift the industry up together. Now moving on to today's guest, I'm super excited to introduce you to Cliff Haney. If you don't already know him, he is the director of marketing for Low Temp Industries, one of the leading solventless extraction manufacturers, and they happen to be based in Colorado. In addition to that work, he is also the co-founder of the Terp Guide, which is a great educational resource for consumers to learn more about top quality cannabis products through their really thorough reviews. I am super fascinated with solventless. It's definitely becoming more and more of a trend in the industry. I don't know if trend is the fair term, but it's the latest adoption and I get it. It's using four main elements, heat, water, ice, and pressure to extract the full essence of the cannabis plant for a full spectrum effect. But From a branding perspective, I've noticed a shift in products hitting dispensaries across the U.S. from edibles transitioning from distillate to live rosin to carts and concentrates. And I, of course, want to learn as much as possible about this category. 
When I dug in and I saw the great work that Low Temp was doing, it led me to Cliff and I knew we had to get him on the podcast to chat about the process and the educational journey for this extraction method from both an industry perspective and a consumer perspective. I basically wanted to know what his take was on brands and cultivators adopting this technique and what was driving them towards this in the marketplace and also to unpack kind of what is next, like where does this go? What is the future of solventless extractions as well? as understand from a marketing and communication perspective, is this value better for a customer? And what is the difference to a customer with these types of products? Just again, backing up and realizing a lot of the big brands that you're seeing have a lot of success from an MSO, multi-state operational perspective, specifically from an edible perspective, they use distillate. And I've been watching some of those brands come to the reality that solventless and full spectrum is what consumers want? Is it what all consumers want? I think that's where the big question mark is. But nonetheless, I'm seeing that trend, that evolution, that journey, both of the standalone big brands that were distillate only now lean into things like Live Rosin and also seeing the emergence of new brands and new opportunities hitting the marketplace, leveraging this type of extraction process. We got into it. There was a lot to unpack. I'm so hyped for you to listen to this episode. I hope you learned something new as with every episode, but especially this episode. I hope you learned something new. If you do, please reach out. Let me know what your thoughts are. But without further ado, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Cliff to the show. My name is Cliff Haney. I'm currently the marketing director of Low Temp Industries and the co-founder of TerpGuide.com. The reason I got into the industry really was because of my mom. She had Tourette's, fibromyalgia. I saw a lot of the benefits that she was getting from both CBD and THC, the amount of medications that she was able to cut from her daily routine just by using some of these products. So that's really what inspired me to get into the space. So after college, I had a lot of job offers there in Little Rock that were banking and real estate and all of these different things, but I I really wasn't interested in any of that. I really wanted to focus on hemp, on cannabis, and find a way to make that my career. So I had a buddy at the time, his name's Corey, and he had been trying to convince me to move to Colorado for, I don't know, two or three years. And it was always just, hey man, I'm still in college. Now's not the right time. I'm broke. And finally he got through to me and was like, hey dude, like if we both go out there together, like we'll figure this out. So I loaded up, I had a tiny Toyota Avalon and just stuffed it full of everything that I could bring with me. So I didn't have a bed. I didn't have a dresser. It was literally just closed and junk filled up in my car. And we decided to come out here and we stayed with a friend in the mountains out in Conifer. And there was a little CBD shop right at the, the edge of the neighborhood. So I stopped in there. The name was Pure Hemp Collective. And I saw some of the work that they were doing, some of the products they were putting out, like they, they really were doing it the, the right way even though they're not in business anymore. They got acquired by another company. So that's where I got my start was in the hemp and the CBD side of things. I did that for probably about a year until we went to the Indo Expo trade show here in Denver, where I met a solventless equipment manufacturer. And at the time I I was familiar with bubble hash. Like I had made bubble hash and I was like 16 years old. We had five gallon buckets and a wooden ladle and we're just beating the hell out of it, scooping the hash out, 
I think one time we even threw it in a dehydrator, not knowing that's probably best to dry this in a cold environment. No, nobody knew any of this at the time. I met them. That kind of led into a career for about three years with them. Then they got acquired by another large company. I really had a, a shift in, in values and what I was looking to do and carry on now that they became corporate. So I found another company, Low Temp Industries, who I'm with currently. That I really loved the team, the mission, what they were doing. I saw that they were the industry standard for solventless extraction equipment at the time. So I started to work with them. I've been doing that for a little bit over a year now. It, it's really cool to see the the growth in solventless as a whole and just being a part of that over the past five years because I just got back from Berlin and Germany. We were setting up one of the largest EU GMP labs there. This company's importing and exporting from other countries, like things that we haven't even seen here in the US. We're talking Canada, Switzerland, Thailand, New Zealand, Israel. So it's it's insane to see some of the things that people are doing. And um, that's my regular nine to five job. And then me and my partner, Eric Vlosky, we started terpguide.com. Um, which basically we're putting out content, product reviews, blog articles on quality products. We saw a huge gap in the market where there were a lot of websites that have like products on them. You'll have your GMO rosin on there, but it, it won't tell you how did that smell? How did that taste? What were the effects? What was the packaging like? There were just none of these details, no actual product images. There are all these stock photos of some mids that look like some brown, dark cash that you're like, I know that's not what single source put out. Like single source puts out fire. Why do they have this trash stock photo of their product? So that's where we really wanted to fill the gap and help consumers identify like, what are the products we should be looking at? We don't just put any product on Terp Guide. It's, it's gotta be the best of the best. And that's the place where people can go. If they're looking for good products, it's just, they don't have to worry about weeding through all the booths. If it's on our site, it's going to be a good product. So, Very cool. No, I'm very excited to have you on the show because like I had mentioned before, when we started recording, I originally came across you through Low Temp because I was recently in Colorado and got to connect with some brands specifically on the solvent list, hash side of the equation. And they were using low temp. And so it piqued my interest as, hey, I haven't really had somebody representing that. I don't, I'm going to call it like a mechanism, like a tool in the industry. And so I certainly yep. wanted to gain a little bit more understanding of that. But then that led me to Terp Guide and just gravitating towards a similar approach to creating content, supporting these independent brands. Obviously, we know marketing your product is chaotic and you're mentioning photos. It's funny, we're redoing our site right now and we're retaking all of our photos. And my intention is for, yes, the photo to match what the consumer is going to get. But man, there's so much in between to try to execute on those fronts. And so obviously as a brand, you want to take high quality professional photos. Not that you aren't, but you're taking it from like a user perspective. And so it's, hey, I'm unboxing this. This is what it looks like. And so I think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff that we're going to talk about in the podcast today. So to kick things off, like I had mentioned, and please correct me because for as much as I know, I'm learning and I think my listeners appreciate that. I fall on the sword a lot because I think that this industry is so new and there's still so much to learn. And so I don't want to call this explicitly a trend, 
because I know that this is going to be here, but I think it's going to continue to evolve as these technologies evolve and as the consumers and the market evolves. But trend meaning when you're going into a dispensary, I think most people today have reconciled and accept that the majority of edibles in the market were and still are made with distillate. Like, I I don't think people really realize that maybe three or four years ago, but now there's a clear delineation between distillate edibles and then you have rosin, resin, hash, et cetera. And so I'm observing this trend happening. And so it's making me really curious because on one end, of course, it's like the full plant. And so I can understand from a consumer perspective, the effects perspective, like why you would gravitate towards that. But from your experience, like how has this all been unfolding for the last five years for you? Was this always something that was like an easy sell to talk to customers about? Were the brands that you were interacting with? Oh yeah, of course we need to press our flour and to use bubble hash and get all these concentrates. And on that note, which I'm sure we can discuss it in length a little bit later, but just these terms are overwhelming for me uh, as a marketer, as someone who operates in the industry. And and so I just want to again hear from your perspective, like where has, where have things started and where have they gone from your perspective operating in the industry? Yeah, it absolutely was not that way four or five years ago. There was a lot of reservation for many companies on whether or not they're going to do solventless or solvent-based or hydrocarbon, like the solventless was always a side thought. It was always, we're going to focus everything on butane extraction and maybe we'll play with the idea of solventless. Like I remember my very first cannabis culture event that I went to with my previous company selling solventless extraction equipment. I talked to the largest gummy producer here in Colorado. They are number one every single year in a row. And I was having this conversation with them five years ago. Hey, you guys need to start looking at making a solventless gummy line. Their CEO looked at me and told me that's never going to happen. Solventless is not here to stay. It's just a little trend that's going to disappear tomorrow. And I remember seeing a a press release about a year ago that they just now decided to uh, start doing solventless edibles. They're finally starting to see that it's taking a lot of market share from these other products because at the end of the day, I don't care what anybody tells you, like it is a better experience, whether that's dabbable concentrate, whether that's an edible, a tincture, like you are capturing the, the true essence of the plant with solventless extraction. Like we're not adding anything. We're not taking anything away. We're literally taking the plant and expressing it in its purest form. So it's going to continue to grow. And I see the industry, you know, shifting more and more to solventless. So that gap is just going to continue to grow um, between some of these other extraction methods. Yeah, it's interesting you highlight that edible manufacturer experience. I think similarly on the hemp side, we're experiencing a lot of hemp derived applications happening. And it's similar. I I remember having some of these brands on my show being like, have you ever thought about hemp derived? And they're like, I would never touch that. And now you're seeing the market open up in different regards. I'm curious though, maybe to go into a little bit, like why were they so dismissive of solvent risk? Like why was that not something that they could wrap their head around at the time, considering that now, yes. And I think your point in highlighting that to reiterate from my perspective, 
it is remarkable when I walk into a dispensary. And so most recently I was in Denver. And again, I think because it's trendy, I am a consumer first. I was asking, I was looking. I really love Dialed In. They're a great brand in Colorado that has really leaned in and really only exclusively has always been in collaboration with these flower brands. And so they're using the full essence of the plant. But I'm asking the bud tenders, they're then saying, oh, this brand now has a hash line and that brand has a hash line. And it's interesting because a lot of them were these big, well-known cannabis brands that up until recently were like, we're not going to touch that. And now I think you're seeing- We're never getting solventless. Yeah, you're seeing that they're now now leaning into it. And so I just want to understand like price-wise- I, I understand the price of distillate, so yeah. I can imagine the infrastructure to go in and set up solvent list. But what do you think from your experience? Why were they so turned off from it that like now they, is it because everybody's doing it? I have to do it. Surely I have to imagine that some of these brands are so large and have so much strategy across the different markets, state to state, even international. It's, this isn't just a small trend. Now, this is a direction that the industry is going. Obviously, we're talking yeah. about edibles, but like you said, from a dabbing perspective, concentrate perspective that is the premier concentrate that people are seeking and after i'm just wondering why and what is the trade-off to go for maybe like a distillate or using a solvent versus solventless is it more economical one way or the other and and what does that look like on paper so i think the reason there was a lot of reservation at first is because these guys were trying to take blue dream and turn it into rosin and like That just doesn't work. There are strain-specific cultivars that are geared towards solventless extraction. It's really all about the size and the shape of the trichome head itself. And a lot of these people were trying to wash strains that were never meant to be washed. There is a place for both hydrocarbon and solventless extraction, depending on the strain that you're trying to produce a concentrate from. So like I said, there's some strains that are never going to be great for solventless. There's some strains that are better expressed in a hydrocarbon extraction. And I think that the huge issue that we were seeing was that nobody was really breeding for solventless extraction. They were just breeding for flour. So they've just been doing business as usual, trying to take these regular strains they've been growing for years and then turn it into a product that it was never meant to be in the first place. So people like Bloom Seco and some of these other genetic companies like have started to hone in on that and focus on solventless genetics. And I think that's why we've seen this increase in popularity because those yields have started to increase. So it has become more profitable for businesses to put out solventless extracts. Wait, so that's interesting. And I can understand it, but just to reiterate it out loud, you're saying... Similarly, just I guess from my perspective, the hemp plant, hemp has an agricultural output where it's really good for fiber. And then there's the consumable side. And so similarly, there's better cultivars that are your perspective and your opinion is it based on the trichomes. Are there any other identifying factors? Like how would someone know that this strain is or isn't good? What does that look like in the end product? What am I looking for when I'm actually doing some of the solventless extraction? Yes. As far as looking at a cultivar and trying to identify, that's really going to be done with a jeweler's loop or a microscope or something where you can actually view it. And I guess the best way to show you without having a diagram is like, what you're looking for is a fat head and a little neck because the 
ice water extraction process is a mechanical process. So we want this head to be able to separate from the stock itself rather easily. So you can imagine if I had a very small head and a very fat neck, that's not going to be a good wash strain. So that's really what you're looking for. Something that can be, you're basically taking with the ice water extraction process, basically taking a samurai sword and just chopping the top of that trichome head off because that's where all of your cannabinoids, your terpenes, all of the medicinal compounds that we're trying to capture, that's where they live. And it's a mechanical process with solventless. Whereas if we took hydrocarbon, it, it doesn't matter the size and the shape because we're just melting it all down anyways. We're dissolving it into a big mixture that we're then going to go back and refine. Interesting. Okay. So you're now talking about washing. I am familiar. I've actually made bubble hash, not nice. batch myself, but someone, yes, has given me a ladle and a big tub and I got to stir. Yep. So I'm familiar with very cool. That process. Yeah, it's it's super fun. Also really cool to see what you can do to cannabis to get yeah. the outcome that you're wanting. And so from my perspective, that's where I'm trying to lean in and understand, okay, when I do this to this plant, this is the outcome when I do that to this plant. And so there's presses. So how does a press differentiate from washing? Those are two different applications, right? But they're both used in conjunction to make most of the products that you okay, see Okay, so you use the them shelves. together. Yep, Got exactly. It. So the typical process is you take your flour, whether that's dry or fresh frozen. Okay. Fresh frozen is going to be the highest quality. So instead of drying your flour after harvest, you're chopping it down, immediately placing it in the freezer. From there, you're taking it to the ice water extraction where you're going to add reverse osmosis filtrated water and ice to a vessel. And then you're going to add your flour. You're going to agitate it slowly. As you agitate, those trichrome heads are going to snap off. They're going to sink to the bottom of your vessel. You're then going to drain all of that water through a series of collection bags that are all different sizes. So they get smaller and smaller as they go down to capture different sized heads. You then take all of that hash from those collection bags or bubble bags, they call them. And you typically place that into a freeze dryer where you're removing all the moisture that just got, you know, saturated from the wash. And then once it comes out of that freeze dryer, it, it looks like bubble hash that you're used to seeing. It's this granular sand looking product that you then load up into your rosin bags. And then you want to turn that hash into rosin. So you apply heat and pressure with the rosin press. And that is what most companies are doing, most of the products you see on shelves. Now, you can just take a rosin press, take dry flour and squish that, but that's not what sells on shelves. That's what people do at home when they're trying to make a little bit of head stash to smoke on in a, a cheap and easy way. But if you're looking to do it the right way and do it, you know, in a way that actually sells, like you've got to go the fresh frozen bubble hash to rosin. No, that makes sense. I think I, it's coming back to me. I was having a conversation with someone about that here in Texas, because I guess my understanding was you could just take the flour pre-harvest and put it in a press. And yes, you're going to get some extraction from that, but the better extraction is going to be going through the washing process. And is it because it gives you more terpenes or more compounds? I guess you're pre-treating it to some extent in these environments to agitate it. But like, 
how would I tell one way over the other? Is it going to be the smell? Is it going to be the effect? Is it diluted from a THC perspective? I'm just curious how that actually shows up other than just being an insuperior product. Yeah, terpenes are definitely going to be a lot higher with the fresh frozen washing route. The color typically is different too. The smell, because when you're pressing flour, it's like vaping flour where that like burnt popcorn kind of smell, taste. Like when you apply the heat and pressure to that flour, it's a less refined starting material. So some of that chlorophyll can transfer through the process. So it might be a little bit darker. It might smell a little bit more flowery. The taste might not be as great. The shelf stability is going to be less because it is a less refined product. So there, there's a lot of a lot of reasons why you would want to go down the the bubble hash route. Like it is a lot more work, but luckily we've got automated washing systems now. So I'm not sitting here stirring a paddle for eight hours a day. Like I'm just boop two buttons so button. washed. Yeah, it's a lot better than it was five years ago. That's for sure. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. Do you find that these products can garner a higher price tag? I'm trying to understand as a brand, other than just believing in the full plant perspective and wanting to not use solvents to get through to an extraction, what is motivating a brand to want to do this from a dollars and cents perspective? Is there, has that side of the market exploded? Has it dipped? Like obviously the price of distillate has fluctuated a lot. Even the price of flour has fluctuated a lot over the years. And so just trying to put my, myself in the shoes of someone who's looking at the sounds really good, but what is it going to do for me on the end side? And then I guess a little bit of that too, we can talk about, which I can reiterate it for you too, but 
like the consumers, are consumers mature right now to know, oh, I'm paying a premium for this, but it's because it's a better quality product. And like, how does that stack out when you're actually dealing with the dispensary side of things and the consumer side of things buying these products? Yeah, you look at like distillate, shatter, live resin, it's always a race to the bottom. Companies are just competing on price point. So here in Colorado, I can go pick up any of those products for 15 to $25. Whereas Live Rosin has really held its value in the market because it is the top shelf product and likely always will be. I don't know how there could be another product that steps in that could overtake Bubble Hash and Live Rosin as the top shelf premium product. Those are more like 50 to $60 a gram retail. So it's really the price point that motivates the companies to put out these products, higher margin products as well. It's really beneficial for them to help build their brand. So they're focused on quality and not trying to be just the Walmart of cannabis where they're putting out the most products, the cheapest products. Customers in mature markets like here in Colorado, they're educated enough to know that there's a reason for the difference in the price point. But if you look at some of these new markets, like they're in the infancy stages where they're still learning what some of these products are. Some people have still never taken a dab or even seen a dab. So to them, shatter, live rosin, it might not make sense for them to spend that extra money because they probably still can't tell the difference. People are getting more educated, but that's really in the more mature markets like California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon. A lot of these new states that have come online, people are still pretty clueless, except for places like Oklahoma. I was I was really surprised by the Oklahoma market. They just, they went straight for rosin out the gate and just flooded the market with all kinds of rosin. I guess it just depends on where you're at too. Yeah, I feel like Oklahoma is, such an interesting market. I We were doing some business there. My husband was on the soil side, he used to cultivate, but he got into the soil side. He's an ag background. And so we were spending some time in Oklahoma. And so I have these alerts and it's beautiful 10 acre facility, full extraction, cultivation. It's like for sale. And it's too many properties like that. Just yeah. like Barely scratched, barely used. And I'm like, wow, I feel for Oklahoma. They, If you can succeed in Oklahoma, I think you've done something good, but it's obviously yeah. a, a harder market to crack. But no, that, that makes sense. And that's certainly interesting. Again, I think that's what I am trying to unpack for the listeners is tracking some of these trends. And I think it's, to me, I like educating on these things because I think that they're important conversations to educate consumers on. But yes, does the lay person, does the generic consumer really understand I'm buying this product versus that product and this product is a premium? Why is it a premium? It's hard to back them into that. So I just wanted to understand some of that from your perspective. Transitioning a little bit into Terp Guide, that to me is a whole marketing playbook for these brands that you're working with. You're obviously based in Colorado. How, like, how did you start that? Was it just, hey, we're going to try these products that I already have in my my repertoire and I'm going to just p- turn a camera on and I'm going to start making content and shooting photos and recording video and putting it out there? And how do you get the consumers to know that you exist as that connection yeah. point for these brands? Yeah, definitely. The way it really started was just me and Eric talking about our our poor experience going to dispensaries like A lot of these places that we really enjoyed, they don't have an online menu, so I can't see the products before 
once COVID started to, started to happen, you could no longer look at the product, smell it, open the jar. Like it was just, all you can see is this display case. And even for somebody like me and Eric, who have been smoking hash for years, pretty up to date on genetics and what products are out there. It's truly overwhelming for me every time I go into a dispensary. Like I feel rushed. I feel like I am taking too long. I feel like I can't make a decision. I don't know what any of these new products are. Like when a new strain drops, I don't know where to find information on that, a picture, a stir shot to see the texture. So we just started to see this and we were like, there's gotta be a way for us to put out content and information. So people actually know what it is they're buying. And so they can identify which products they should actually even look at in the first place. And luckily for both of us, like we both came from the solventless extraction aside. So most of these labs, like we set up their labs with equipment. So we've seen their operation, we know their team. And, and that's really what we set out to do was to find which companies are doing it the right way. Like we know that they're putting out clean products, good terps. Then we approached the dispensaries and the purchasing managers and we said, hey, which of these products do you feel are truly the most special? Then we started to compile a list of these, started to weed through them ourselves. Like just because a brand or a dispensary manager recommends a product to us and we pick it up to review, doesn't mean that we're going to review it. If it doesn't check the boxes for us and at least hit our minimum like approved category, we're not going to put out any content about it because we, we don't really want to focus on the negative. Like we've only got so many hours in our day. We want to spend that highlighting the products that are actually good. And so if you come onto our site, all you're going to see are good products. There's no reviews on mids. So that was really what we were looking to do. So what are your qualifications then that you look for when you're grading yeah. a product? Obviously, you're highlighting it's the terps, it's the smell, it's the consistency, but like maybe let's get a little bit more granular for, for those sure. of us who, yes, I know what terpenes are, but like, what am I smelling? Like, what are you smelling for? What are you specifically looking for? So really, as far as the smell goes, so I'll, I'll take you through my process. I purchased the product. It comes straight out of the refrigerator. I've put it straight into my little ice pack container until I get home. Then I let it sit there for about 15 minutes to get closer to room temperature. I crack the lid open. The first thing I'm doing is looking at it. I'm looking at the texture, the color, how wet is it? I tend to like the really wet, cold, pure batters because they're shelf stable, they look delicious. Then I'm smelling the product. It's not that I'm smelling for any one thing in particular. I'm just like, what is the, the intensity of the smell? Can I hold it right here and smell the product? And if I can hold it right here and still smell it, typically it's pretty loud, it's pretty good product. But what I'm searching for if I wanna smoke it is like, does this smell speak to me? And typically I found if this smell speaks to me and I like the smell of it, I'm going to enjoy smoking it. Whereas if it's something that I smell that there's something weird in the back of my head that's I'm not crazy about this, more often than not, it's going to give me effects that I don't enjoy as well. Like sometimes I can come in the form of like anxiety or thinking about dumb shit that I said 10 years ago or like what whatever it is. Like I try to lead with my nose and, and let that kind of guide me towards the experience I'm looking for. But from there, I'm typically stirring the product up to see 
if it's dry and crusty and you can tell it hasn't been handled properly at the dispensary level or the transportation level, I'm not interested. Then I'm smoking it. I'm seeing what the taste is. What are the effects like after the exhale? How long were those effects? How strong? Like there, there's a wide range of things that I'm looking for, but really most of the time it's, I try to be, try to separate myself from the product and not just look at what I like, but look at, even though I might not like GMO, is this a good representation of GMO? And if it is, then it'll still get the the top marks from us. Yeah, you mentioned obviously your nose knows, and that's actually a saying that we say a lot, even in our shop here in Austin. And unfortunately, yes, when COVID happened, it created a barrier for a while for us to leverage our nose knowing. But just because you brought it up, I'm so curious, and you addressed it, of course, where you're trying to think of it independently, but it is so personal. And so I'm curious if there's things that you smell that then your counterpart, Eric, is, no, that was amazing. And it, it just doesn't gravitate towards you because I do think so much of cannabis is based on our bio and what speaks to us. It's like your nose knows and it always makes me think of my dad. We always have this conversation about the best hamburger. It's subjective. It's the best hamburger yeah. for whoever is eating it at the time who thinks it's the best, but you might disagree. And so it's a very difficult arena to play. And obviously, again, from a marketing side, I know there has to be some hierarchy. You have to put something on the paper. And part of that marketing is, yeah, how you talk about it, how you finesse it, how you photograph it, how whatever, jazz it up. But on the rudimentary level of, wow, I think this smells amazing. And then my friend is, that smells like shit. Like, how do you reconcile those feelings when it is so subjective to the end person? Yeah, I think we're just focusing on like the quality of the smell and the taste. Eric's basically like a, a chef in the kitchen. This dude is a wizard when it comes to cooking. So his palate's got a lot wider range, right? So like he'll appreciate a lot more of the gases and the funky strains more so than me. Like I like sweet, sugary, fruity. Oh, yeah. Like I would eat ice cream cake for dinner if my mom had let me when I was a kid. Like I would eat dessert before dinner all day, every day. That's not to say that neither one of us can identify. He can identify the sweet, sugary, fruity. I can still identify these GMOs, even though it's not my preference to have that garlicky, gassy, whatever it is. I can still tell you because I've smoked enough. This is a good one or this is a a so-so one. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I was just super curious how you would react or respond to that. But you mentioned something that I want to follow up on. You talked about the handling. So the handling of the transportation and the handling of the dispensary. This is, again, new information to me. We just got back from Champs, actually. I was at Champs a couple of weeks ago in Vegas, and I don't didn't know you were supposed to keep your concentrates on ice or refrigerated. And that kind of blew my mind. And so you just mentioned it. You're pulling it from the fridge. You're keeping it on ice on your way home. You're then letting it drop to room temperature. Why keep it on ice, refrigerated? How are they mishandling it? And if this is common knowledge or this is the best way to preserve it, like why are people mishandling it in the transportation and the dispensary side? What is happening that you're observing and what is best practice that you wish people did? Yeah, as far as what's happening, I think a lot of it's just ignorance, not caring, cutting corners, but 
ultimately when you're looking to store any cannabis concentrate, it's either going to go in the refrigerator or the freezer. The freezer is typically for long-term storage. The fridge is more for short-term. Long-term would be anything longer than two to three months. Short-term would be anything shorter than that. If it's bubble hash, I'm always storing that in the freezer. If it's rosin, only time I'm putting it in the freezer is, like I said, if I'm trying to store it for longer than three to six months. As far as the refrigerator, when I pull my rosin out of the fridge, I'm typically letting it reach room temperature before opening it, just so I don't have moisture build up inside of the jar and degrade the product because it, it's pretty shocking for the jar to come straight out of the cold into a room temperature environment. That's how you start to have that moisture build up. So that that is typically best practice, but that's not to say I always do that. That's the benefit of having a cold cure rosin or a rosin jam. Some of these more shelf stable products is that I've got a jar of cold cure rosin that I've had out for 10 days now at room temperature. And it's still incredible. Smells great, tastes great, hasn't had that much degradation. But really the reason people are using either the fridge, the freezer, is to maintain those terpenes and to maintain the texture. Because if I pick up a product from a dispensary and I see this like layer of crust on the outside of it, or that it's dried out and I know that's not how it's supposed to be, that's because they received the product, they let it sit there on the, sh on the counter while they're applying their stickers that they have to apply. Somebody walked away, went on lunch break and just left them there. Oh, put them in the fridge after. Doesn't work like that. When it comes to that, what is the, I can understand some of it. The education is just like this application is just still fairly new in the industry. I've been talking to a lot of people even about beverages and noticing that Colorado has a lack of cannabis beverages. And part yeah. of that is because of how you transport and store them. So obviously fridge space is a luxury. It sounds like it should be more of a necessity, especially when you are selling the predominant product. So my observation is this would be anything that this solventless is coming in contact with. So does that mean your cartridges that are solventless should be refrigerated? Mm -hmm. Does that mean your edibles should be refrigerated? Or is that just specifically on the extract itself is to keep it cold? Yeah, just the extract itself. Once it's been decarboxylated, like it is very shelf stable. And that's basically what's happening for edibles, for cartridges. So those products I'm never refrigerating. Got it. Um, it's really just dabable concentrates that whether that's rosin or bubble hash that I'm putting in the refrigerator. Interested. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to get a refrigerator and put all my products in the refrigerator now. But it is, again, just one of those things people don't know what they don't know. And I feel like so much of this industry is learning by example, whether it's been a bad example and they're correcting it or they had a great person showing them the way before and they're adopting it and it's becoming an industry trend. Is there a state from your experience, maybe you're biased because you live in Colorado, but is there a state in your experience who's doing solventless the best in terms of who's adopting it from a brand perspective, storing it dispensary-wise, end consumers, like is Colorado, I guess also, who's your largest customer by state? Is it from a low temp perspective? Is more of the business happening in California? I'm just curious what state is really adopting and driving some of this. Yeah, I would say California and Colorado are typically always gonna lead the pack there. 
California is where most of the genetics are created. And here in Colorado, like there are a ton of hash brands. There's always a big, oh yeah, a, a big divide in the industry. Who has the most buyers? It, Colorado is a California. Sure. You go to California, they're gonna be like, oh, Colorado's mids. I don't want the Colorado crispy. You yep. come here, they're like, oh, Cali's overrated. It's all outdoor. <laughs> it's all dips. Like, there, there's fire in both. Like, I've had incredible stuff. For sure. Like, my Colorado homies are gonna hate me for this one, but it's hard to beat Cali, dude. Like, you've got these pockets in these areas where they can grow outdoor and grow fire outdoor. So it's it, it's tough to beat California, honestly. And they typically are doing the most out there. Like they are running it up. It's they just are. crazy to see. Yeah, they've got a reputation, that's for sure. On that, is there any, we talked a little bit about it too, the trends of this where we agree it's not a trend, but it is becoming more of a step stool, I think, for just like how this goes. I know you said there's not really, I guess, a way to do this differently. Is the technology for how to do solventless pretty like specifically done or is there a way to do it better? I'm just curious from a California perspective, are they doing anything interesting when it comes to solventless that other markets are learning and observing in terms of leading trends or taking this and applying it in a new interesting way? Like what's coming down the pipeline from your world when it comes to solventless that you're like, ooh, that's interesting and more markets should adopt that. Yeah, I should just make one distinction too about what I just said. Colorado has better products on shelves than California. California has better trap hash than Colorado. So that's a good distinction there. But as yes. far as what they're actually doing different, I think in California, it's just the size and scale of things. In California, it, it's a place that can set trends, whether that be in fashion, in music, in nightclubs, in cannabis, in alcohol. Whereas Colorado doesn't have that same like cool factor. Trends don't start in Colorado. Like people drive Subarus and wear hiking boots. It's not like we're going to the club and we got the Gucci store right down the block. Like it, it's different like vibe yeah. and community. So it's easier to make hype stuff in California and really have it blow up and charge $100 a gram than it is here in Colorado. And in terms of what they're doing different, it's just there's so many people breeding in California because there is so much land that they're able to grow outdoor. Like these little microclimates that they have there are perfect for growing cannabis. And that's why they're able to put out so much fire compared to Colorado. You've got a very short growing window here. If you are trying to do it outdoors, it's super dry climate here. It's hard to dry and cure your bud. Well, not dry them, but cure them and have the right humidity level to them. Then you asked, is the development over for solventless? Like we're, we're always looking to make the process more efficient, but I think like the bare bone structure of take flour, add ice and water, apply heat and pressure will always remain the same. But I think there's just going to be some little differences in maybe the way that we're actually completing the process to reduce labor costs, to reduce consumable costs. Yeah. Like we're always going to find ways to optimize, but I, I truly believe like we're pretty well going to stay within that ice water heat pressure. Like it, it's not really going to expand outside of that. Yeah, very much makes sense. And I think when you distill it down to 
like you said, ice water, heat pressure, those are very like ancient kind of like applications. And so it yeah. can't get much more uh, natural than that. And so to see it be applied through cannabis to offer the superior hybrid product that you're able to achieve through this process is just remarkable. And, and like I said, it's something that I've been paying attention to and I'm a consumer of when I can be. And I'm just trying to understand it more. So you certainly answered a lot of those questions that I had to final pivot and and ask a little bit because I know you just came back from Berlin. You mentioned what's going on internationally. I've been super fortunate to have a couple guests on who do cannabis internationally. I've been to Germany recently before they were really like moving towards legalization. And now I think things have sold out a little bit in Germany, but I know that I'm just scratching the surface with, with what I know about international cannabis, but I think for the listeners, it's always something that it still shocks me. I'm like, we don't even know what commerce is like in this industry until you go international, because I really think yeah. that they're so more far advanced than us in terms of how the product is moving across these country lines, how this infrastructure is getting set up. So I don't know, I'll leave the floor open. What did you learn? It was ICBE, right? International Cannabis it's ICBC, so International ICBC. Cannabis Business Conference. Conference. Yeah. There we go. ICBC. Yep. So what was the takeaway? What did you observe? What's happening international? Where does low temp play into what's happening international? I just always love getting a pulse from people who are in the trenches. Yeah. No, there's a lot of cool things happening internationally. They're not um, tied down by some of the regulations that we have here. While their regulations are probably more strict in terms of complying with the EU GMP and a lot of these other um, governing bodies, like it's at a different size and scale because they are able to import and export. The way these guys are looking at this is they're building out massive warehouses, whereas most of the people I talk to here in the U.S. are more like small scale boutique craft operators focusing on quality germany there's only four players there currently one of them is a german cannabis company the other three have come from canada other places to try to operate there so the these companies are mostly right now focused on producing for the medical market so they're putting out flour they're looking at tinctures salves like dabbable concentrates, while they might have that thought in the back of their head, they're really not looking at that as like one of their main sources of income or revenue uh, because consumers still aren't really that educated on these products. Most of them in Germany haven't dabbed, much less know what like hash rosin is. So that's still developing there. Canada's had a massive market for a while now. Their sales have experienced a lot of growth uh, over the past year even. And that's because they're able to export to some of these other places. Especially Thailand is a big one right now. Seeing the growth in Thailand is insane. There are hundreds of dispensaries there now. Companies from the US, companies from Canada, everybody's pouring money into that market, looking at the way it's going to develop. As far as for low temp, like this is this has all been great for us because we did become the industry standard here in the U.S. We're in the biggest multi-state operators in the world. I mean, our equipment's been tested. It's been proven. There's tons of content out there about it. For some of these operators in other countries, like we're like an easy fit for them because they see we've already dialed in this process. 
We've already worked with a lot of the companies that they're trying to emulate. So it's really pretty easy plug and play because our equipment is so simple and modular. It's, you've got your hash washing system, you've got your freeze dryer, you've got your rosin press, and it is a very simple process. So it's easy for us to show them like, hey, if you get these genetics, we can show you how to put out fire. But unless you have these genetics, like, good luck washing Blue Dream, buddy. No, it's very interesting and fascinating. Again, I think the like the priviness that I've been to what's happening in the European cannabis market, just it's incomprehensible to people operating in the United States right now because we can't even fathom what interstate commerce is going to look like at scale, yeah. let alone these countries are, like you said, they're importing, they're exporting, they're building this infrastructure. And it is all with a very pharmaceutical bent to it. So it's really interesting how cannabis is getting adopted and at what scale. I always love to end my episodes on a high note. So we've talked about a lot of great things. So whether this is for low temp, whether this is for Terp Guide, just you and per- you, you in general, your personal, what are you looking forward to, whether it's a trend or an opportunity or just a direction things are heading in? I just love to hear what's on the horizon. Yeah, so as far as low temp goes, I'm, I'm looking forward to international expansion getting more products in these other countries, working with these countries and finding out like how we can grow our solutions to bigger, better things. And yeah, just working hand in hand and like developing hash culture in other countries, like taking what we've learned here and applying them to these other places and really educating consumers on what they should be looking for and why it's important, like why solventless is on nobody's radar in some of these other countries. So spearheading that operation, like education is always my favorite part of the job, right? Like putting out content, going to these culture events and really spreading that love. In terms of Terp Guide, it's national expansion. So it's getting outside of Colorado and starting to tap into some of these other markets like California, working with some of these hash makers and these companies to not just highlight their products, but highlight what it is they're doing as a company, because we really want to support people who are doing it the right way. Like I I didn't get in this to be a part of this corporate cannabis takeover, dominate, make the market ship downwards so we can capitalize. We want to find like the companies that are doing it right. And we support their mission and find a way to help uplift those people and the, and the people that work for them. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at ToBeBluntPod and at TheShadedTorabi. 
Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.